Greetings Earthlings, this is a broadcast from Planet Fuzzy and we're going to be talking to you about science today and I would like to welcome fellow space traveller from the Canberra Times science writer Nisa Skilton. Good morning, thank you for having me today on a lovely Sunday morning. And uh, we have a very special guest today. Now, you know we all have uh, fruit and vegetables, we know that they grow in plastic bags in the supermarket. They're nurtured by attendants who make sure they're watered and fertilised and kept free of pests. And each week, we drive those little tractors with wobbly wheels to harvest next week's meals. I'm not sure which bits are natural and which bits are human-engineered, but I realise that we've cleverly caused them to grow wrappings of plastic and even tin. And being that smart sort of bloke, I eventually realised we didn't quite have this story right. And this came about with my depressing encounter with a field of zucchinis. Have you ever grown zucchinis? No, I haven't. I've grown, the most I've grown in the garden is probably parsley and um, a little bit of mint. I think mint is very hard to kill. So. Uh, well, let me tell you, there's nothing quite so depressing as standing in front of a 100 metre row of zucchinis in a five acre paddock of the cursed things. You've got a bucket and a knife and a pair of cotton gloves because they've got rough little stalks on them and uh, they rub your hands and you stand at the beginning of the row with this bucket and you go, uh, that zucchini is a little bit small so I'll let it go for the moment. I'll pick him up tomorrow when he's growing a little bit. But you know what it's like with a bit of moisture in the sun, you can hear them creaking and groaning. And by the time you walked up the row and back, the thing is the size of a marrow. So uh, that was my father-in-law's vegetable farm which turns out looks nothing like a supermarket. That was a bit of a revelation to me. And each year he'd plant rows of lettuce and uh, dutifully following the tractor was a squad of ducks who would pluck each lettuce out and just neatly plonk it on the ground beside the furrow. So from this experience I went from the woefully unaware to the utterly ignorant about how our food is actually grown. I'm very pleased to say that I've got a friend in the studio now to help us uh, with this story. I'd like to introduce Dr Richard Sturzaker. Good morning Richard. Good morning Rod. Now, Richard is a Principal Research Scientist at the CSIRO Land and Water and author of this wonderful new book that's just hit the shelves in the last few weeks called Out of the Scientist's Garden. Uh, what a good book. I really enjoyed reading it, Richard. Thank you. Now, we're going to uh, be talking more in detail about what happens in the Scientist's Garden and, well, as we always like to do, we're going to kick off with some items from This Day in Science. Start off, we've got um, an Australian this day in science. Sir John Eccles died um, today, and he was most known for winning the uh, 1963 Nobel Prize for physiology or medicine for his discovery of the chemical means by which impulses are communicated or repressed by nerve cells. And he showed actually how signals pass between nerves and muscles. Uh, now, Richard, uh, you, you might think, how can that possibly be relevant to uh, growing things in the garden? But do you remember ever seeing on, uh, uh, I did see this on television, uh, those experiments where people would put electrode uh, monitoring devices on plants and to see whether they had, they could sense people's feelings and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. I'm not in science here, am I? <laughs> no, we've drifted already. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, though. I remember seeing, it may have been on um, Mythbusters, a little bit related to growing plants um, and electricity, kind of. Um, they played the plants' music, and mm. they played them, well, there was one set of plants, they played hardcore rock and roll, kind of screamy music, and then another group, they played classical music, and then they had the control group, which is nothing. And um, I can't... I vaguely remember that the w group that had the hardcore music was um, the most kind of productive, but it may have been kind of too due to sunlight and things like that as well. It's a great topic for Mythbusters. I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> don't know how much science is behind that. Uh, the other, the other, this day in science, um, Leonardo da Vinci actually died today. Um, the Italian painter, draftsman, sculptor, architect and engineer, best known for such paintings as the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. Oh, what a clever lad. Uh, we're going to get him on Fuzzy Logic sometime as well, if we can get him. <laughs> He'd be quite a haul. This fellow here, also born on uh, this day in 1860, 
Sir Darcy Wentworth Thompson. He was a British, uh, sorry, a Scottish zoologist and classical scholar noted for his influential work on growth and form and his profound consideration of shapes of living things. And he said, one must study not only finished forms, but the forces that moulded them. And the form of an object is a diagram of forces. And I've often thought it's really interesting to ponder how it is that a plant knows, or or an animal knows, or whatever living thing knows, that I think I'll grow a branch in this direction, or I'll grow a flat area, or I'll grow, or I'll put this sort of chemical in this particular spot. Do you ever look at your plants, Richard, and, and say, what causes you to grow in that in that in that way? Look, absolutely. Um, you know, if you if you in in the book on the chapter about fruit, I mean, on fruit trees, um, you know, fruit are amazing. Because, fruit trees are amazing because. Um, they're always balancing what we call the source and the sink, which is how much how, how much of my energy do I put into leaves and how much of my energy do I put into fruit? Because leaves, you know, make sugar and fruit uses it up. But of course, the fruit is is the um, you know carries the seed, and, and that's their main aim to get into the next generation. And plants have all kinds of ways to work out this balance between. So if, to give you an example, um, you know, the, 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 the bud at the top of a tree makes a hormone that gravity um, moves downwards that inhibits every other bud because the plant must use, the first thing it must do, must use all its energy to make height because you, if you're not in the sun, then the game's over if you're a tree. You can't live in the shade. So the first thing to do is to use all your resources in the most important thing. If that tip is lost, then that signal that suppresses lateral buds is lost and they will then um, sprout. And and that's why we prune, for example. We prune to balance the fruitfulness and the vigour of a plant. So, uh, you know, know, plants are um, evolved to survive, but when we domesticate them, we make a deal with them. We'll say, look, I'll look after your competitors, you give me fruit. So you don't have to worry about getting high, you know, I mean, as in terms of tall. Um, I'll, I'll make sure no one grows over the top of you, but I want to balance the sugar you make with my needs, which is the, I want the fruit, you know. I don't want you to spend all your energy now, beating up your neighbours. I think I did throw you a little bit, you know, in my earlier comment about uh, plants with electrodes and things yeah. on them, but actually it's not that silly because... There is no central intelligence agency in sitting in a side of plant. There is no accounting. No, there's, no brain. there's no accounting section that says I have a budget. I'm going to give you this much for growing up and this much for growing fruit and so on. So somehow this is distributed across the plant, and you, you yes. said the tip is communicating with other parts of the plant through the hormones. Yes, well that's that's one example. I mean that's right. It, uh, there's an, another good example is. Um, when the, the seed is developed, say you, um, in spring, you've got buds that are either going to turn into flowers, which will make fruit, or into leaves, which will make sugar. So, and the plant's got to decide how many of each it makes. It's got to decide. Um, now, when, in, in say, this spring that's just gone past, every developing fruit makes a hormone that travels down that branch. Now, if you've got thousands of fruit, it makes a hormone that suppresses fruit buds for next year because it knows it's going to be absolutely exhausted. If, it, if it's got to fill this many fruit this year, it can't fill that many next year. So what I have to do, if I don't want thousands of small fruit, I have to go in there at a certain stage and knock off a certain number of fruit so it doesn't get the message not to fruit next year. Okay, so if, if, if you might not have seen this, but in your garden, there is a, or in, in orchards, there's a real problem called biennial bearing. When if this system gets out of whack, the plant grows lots of fruit one year, and then it gets a message: don't set fruit buds next year. So it makes no fruit. Then the next year, it's the, the, the message not to make you know to make fruit buds is gone because there's no fruit. So it makes all fruit buds, and then it fruits amazingly, and then it fruits nothing. So it's called by, it, and it kind of gets worse and worse and worse. And you have to come in there and say, okay, half the fruit's going because I'm trying to keep it in balance. So they they get out of whack when we manage them, you know, uh, if, if, or if we don't manage them. Mm. So 
Now, I, I just did you get that? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did, and and it strikes me that what you're doing is you have a deep understanding of the behaviour of the plant, how it responds to different stimuli. Mm. If you cut it here, or if you fertilise it mm. here, what it what its response is going mm. to be. Mm. So, is what was the objective that you had in writing your book? I I I, sh- I should step back and say I was incredibly lucky. I got a grant that I. I didn't know existed. I, I got a grant not to go to work. People ask me, "Are you, you know, were you a troublemaker or what happened?" You know, but for a very brief period before the agency was shut down, <laughs> they decided to change the way they would fund science for a few people, and just say, "If you had a year off, what would you do?" Now, one of the big issues in public life is accountability. You know, I work for CSIRO. And CSIRO receives a lot of money from government, and therefore I need to be accountable. Now, what does accountability mean? It means no risk. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I, I, I want to be accountable, but over what time scale am I accountable? So if I say to you, yes, you give me this money, and on this day I'll do this and this and this and this, you know, and we set up a contract to make sure that I do what I said, well... Um, what will I do when I get surprises or unpleasant results or things that, you know, will I follow them up or will I follow the contract? (laughs) So how fast will I learn? Now, I'm paid to find out what doesn't work in a sense because in that is the seeds of new knowledge. But if I have to say long in advance what I'm going to do, you know, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, well, I'm accountable, but am I creative, you know, and so just to jump back to the book, there is an organisation uh, called Land and Water Australia. It's been abolished, I'm sorry to say, but it was a government agency. And it picked a few people and it just said, um, write one page of what you would do if we went to your boss and said, this guy's salary's paid. And a number of people, you know, got shortlisted and then they picked a couple. And I said in my one page that I would write a book about how the world feeds itself but it would be through the lens of a garden just like the example we just had about the fruit tree and it would be written for a lay audience because scientists um, you know we we write pretty terse crusty manuscripts mm-hmm. for a very select audience and no you know if we maybe we should jump to Nissa because when it hits the media, what, what what works in the media? What kind of science story works in the media? I mean, I, you know, very difficult job, of course, to get science grabs over because you want silver bullet or, you you know, you either get catastrophe or silver bullet. Oh, mm, horrible it's the button. Sort of... We call it kind of the, the media button and it's okay. something that relates. Often um, you'll, be, you'll hear the example of sex is the media button okay. for science stories. If okay. it's got sex in it, then yeah. it'll run. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we you know we say well, science isn't sexy or something, which to a science makes, scientist makes no sense. But in in, in writing a, a, and and we'll get onto this later. But in writing a story, and a story that doesn't, it's not a manifesto that says everybody should do things this way. It's a story that tells us how we feed ourselves, how we've done it since agriculture began, and why we do it that way. But it's rooted in a garden, which everyone's got some affiliation or connection with so what was the question I can't remember but the book is called Out of the Sardin's Garden and it's a story of how the world feeds itself and I had a year off to do it which is an incredible luxury for a scientist so I could throw my whole self into it well I think in your case uh, it was a great investment because we do have this wonderful book out of it and it's doing something really important and that's communicating a very deep message to a wide audience so I, I, it deserves to succeed, I believe. And your garden has become famous around Canberra as well. I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, may have even seen Richard's garden. Um, your open gardens as part of Australia's open garden scheme attracts. How many people did you have last time? This year we had about 1,400, I think, on the... Yeah. <laughs> what was the state <laughs> of the garden the next day? Oh, excellent. Yeah, you know, we're picking up a very gentle part of the community I think (laughs) and there's paths and um, look there's minimal damage done it's a lovely weekend actually I, I love it 
Well, I remember coming, um, it was, I must have come over in February around the time of the launch of your book. And it was just incredibly lush and green. And there were, I remember eating amazing grapes and plums and it was just bursting with fruit. What's it like at the moment now that we're heading into winter? Okay. okay. Um, yeah, you know, one of the tricks with a Canberra garden is um, you have to flip from a summer garden to a winter garden and you have to do it a lot earlier than you would think. While there's still warmth in the soil, you've got to get plants pretty big, uh, your winter crops, so that they mature slowly into the cooling weather. Um, you know, w- what happens in Canberra is people get gluts. You get the kind of Christmas to now glut. I mean, glut's probably finished for most people of tomatoes and zucchinis, as Rod was saying. Um, whereas you need to transition into all the cabbages, cucumber, uh, cabbages, broccoli, um, carrots, spinach, all the things that are going to keep you going through the winter. But you, you know, but to your question is, what does our garden look like now? Well, a different from most years because I'm going to take my long service in Africa from July to December, oh, or no. at, at half time actually, so <laughs> I can squeeze in, and I'm giving my garden a sabbatical. So it's going under cover crops. Wow. And gardens need a rest too. So it's going, it's, it's going under mustard and clover and wheat. And slowly as each last crop comes out, it's... Oh, and going when into I a get bit of a hibernation. In, well, um, um, you know, the cover crop... There's, there's kind of a restorative, restorative phase, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, the cover crops all have their own purposes to... You know, the poor old... You know, gardens are pushed pretty hard, so... So my garden gets a sabbatical for six months. So what happens when your your garden is resting, and what's happening in the soil? And okay, that's a good point. Why does soil need to rest? Um, you know, the main issue I think in a in a in a when you in, in a vegetable garden is simply the build up of soil borne diseases. So if you are growing closely related crops or whatever, you um, you, you slowly build up a um, yeah, just, just 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 too much of a burden of disease. You know, one of the really interesting things is n- nothing grows food as well as virgin land. And you have to ask yourself why. What do you actually do to so, you know? I mean, I, I know, for example, in in, in 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 the in the tomato industry in this country, sometimes a farmer might own just the tomato picker and just rent the land, so you can just keep moving. Yeah, uh, so mm. checking your your blog and and looking at mm. at your book, you you talk about the nutrients, the micronutrients, mm. and the phosphorus and the nitrogen mm. and stuff like that, and you you have your garden. Or actually, I'll, I'll, I'll change this into a question. Yes. What instrumentation do you have okay. to tell you what's going on in your garden? Okay. Okay. Most gardeners have what we call a green thumb. Good gardeners, they see things, and at the, from that they anticipate they're observing subtle signs now that's subjective and you can't transfer a green thumb from one person to another what science is is objective in other words if I can tell you how to do something and this is the number on the machine then anybody can do it okay now subjectivity is beautiful and wonderful the, the person with the, with the eye that sees ah oh, that's the the moth of a such and such and I've seen that moth arrive and therefore I know what's going to happen in they don't wait till the caterpillar's this big and you know and then realise the cabbages are eaten so science tries to make knowledge explicit okay so I, I have a bit of a green green thumb but I'm also a measurer and I my great love is to make simple tools that can I can measure things and prove myself wrong. Now, does this sound strange? What you have to do is... Um, science is about a hypothesis and an experiment where you remove the variables that are extraneous to the question you're asking. You have a control, you have replication, you have statistics. You write it up, you're peer-reviewed. Okay? That's, but that's, an, that's, that's the little pieces of the puzzle. So, you know, there's little pieces of the puzzle where you... One variable at a time. But in a garden, all the variables are mixed up together. I can't just look at pH or disease or nitrogen or temperature or whatever. I've got them all mixed up. So now I take certain measurements and I say, I think on the blog you're referring to, I grew a bed of corn with water from the washing machine. Mm. Now I then have a conceptualization in my head. I'm going to add salt. 
I'm going to add, uh, and plants don't like salt because it makes them thirsty, like us. Okay, they can't get water out of salty soil. I'm adding sodium, which changes the way the clay behaves in soil. Clay tends to disperse, and then it can block all the pores. It goes into solution, and then... Um, so the way water moves will change. Is that pores in the plant or pores in the soil? Pores in the soil, pores in the soil, yeah. So um, your question was, what do I measure? I always look for the simplest way to measure something. So I have a conceptualization, what's going to happen when I do this? And then I measure, in this case, how hard the plant has to suck to get the water out of the soil. I know that sounds strange, but there's instruments that can do that. How deep the water goes every time I irrigate. That's my little favorite tool, which, you know, which comes out of our lab. I then get a water sample and I measure the conductivity of it. Yes, one of your little probes, but, you know, um, how much salt's in that water. I measure the pH, I mean, you know. And um, these aren't things that an average gar everyday gardener can do. <laughs> I'm not saying we should all go out and do that. But one of the things I'm really interested in is um, formalizing our learning. So we all learn by experience, but some people's learning is more purposeful than others. Okay. Yes. So we learn by experiment, but an experiment's a, a narrow way to learn because when I do an experiment, I frame the question by removing all the extraneous variables. In the real world, that frame goes. So science produces building blocks, but it doesn't necessarily produce the picture of the, on, the, on the box of the puzzle which we might have to explore a bit later on. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. Where I was leading with that question is, so what you're doing is a lot of physical and chemical measurements, so yes. pH and yeah. uh, salinity yeah. and so on. Yes. But earlier you were talking about the uh, biota within the soil, so mm. the diseases and so on. Mm. Is there a way that you can measure the microbial life in the soil? Um, yes, there is. There are. Um um, I mean, as in science, there are people look at, you know, take a piece of soil and look at how fast it's, it's respiring, for example. In other words, how much, is actually, how much life is there because it, all life respires. It uses energy and has to give off carbon dioxide. But now I'm out of my field now, but there's people who do kind of, you know, gene sequencing of, of all, you know, these, all these, back, you know, what, what functions are actually going on if I, you know, what, what, what enzymes are actually being produced by all these microorganisms that are actually doing something? You know, all these, the microbes are, you know, most of them are good. Most of them are breaking down organic matter into nutrients and doing that, you know, that. Um, but there's some that are pathogens who are, their food is my food. They want what I want. You know, we're on a collision course. <laughs> Um, but I was wondering whether there's a way you can measure because you said the green fields, yeah. the uncropped site is the most productive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there a way that you can monitor the growth of the soil life itself yeah. and, and then see what's going on there that, that has affected the productivity over that course? Yeah, yeah. Look, not simply. There's no. Sim there's thousands of different, millions of different organisms in the ground, most of which we don't know what they do. This is why you know biodynamics and organic farming have such big followings because it's so complex there's so much happening which is so hard to unravel you know um so in all in all the sciences in all the soil sciences the soil physics you know um the physics of holding water and and, and how water moves and there's soil chemistry which is the nutrient side and then the soil biology which is the life you know and that one is we, we hardly you know we only understand the beginnings of well, what, what, what comes through with you, Richard, is that this is very real for you, that it's a very, almost like a tangible thing and you can, you have a very personal feel for it. I think we'll, we'll cut to a break now. This will be uh, like humans do, and you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with myself, Rod, with Canberra, writer, Canberra Times writer, Nisa Skilton, and author of Out of the Scientist Garden, Richard Stasek, where we're discussing food and how we grow it. 
Yeah, I remember I sat down with you for a while when I wrote a feature article about your new book, Richard, um, earlier in the year. And I remember you talking about um, your invention, Clever Clover. Um, and I thought it was a phenomenal success because you were talking about selling it like hotcakes, selling mm. thousands and thousands mm. of packets of mm. this Clever Clover. And the nation, um, everyone knowing about Clever Clover, you still hear people, and I'm sure you meet people all the time, who say, oh, I use clever clover in the garden. But um, you came across as disappointed about that product, even though you'd sold however many thousands of the packets of clever clover. And I was wondering... I was thinking that made me um, realise that you're not the kind of person who measures success by the sales of something. So I am interested in asking you how the sales are going <laughs> with your book because I imagine it's um, quite popular. How? What? Firstly, what is the response to the book in terms of sales at the moment? Wow. Okay. Um... Look, I am a little bit of a numbers man, I'm oh. afraid. Uh, well, you know, we're always asked, what's the impact, you know, is yeah, there, yeah. you know, of what you're doing? And for us, um, you know, science is a long, it's a marathon. If you keep looking at impact, you'll, you will drift towards spin. You know, every, every, every grant that every person gets, you have to say, how is this going to change the world? Well, hardly anything's changed the world, really, of all the millions of grants we get. So... Let me ask you, what would you think a print run of a book like that would oh, be? Geez. What's the print run for the Canberra Times? Okay. Uh, we <laughs> I don't know if I should be talking about that, but mm. uh, thinking about our print run, um, I guess maybe, and that's per day, would be looking at the many thousands. Mm. Um, so maybe guessing for your book, 50,000? Oh, wow, Nisa. If ever, Because yeah. <laughs> that's what we'd be looking at oh, okay. with, a, with a big metropolitan okay. newspaper. Um, but then again, the paper comes out every day. It's about a dollar. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I'll tell you, this is what I know about publishing. Not much, but this is what I know. If you, if you go with a big publisher, they may or may, may not take you on. If you're an unknown, you're unlikely. Okay, we can... But if they do, they will put your book at eye level in every bookshop on uh, for three months or so and on those twirly gigs and you know because they own them the publishers own those spaces in front of the bookshops and if you sell a certain amount in that time you will um, have your book reprinted and if you don't you are remained it and that's the end of that <laughs> so this particular book is published by CSRO Publishing and if you're a science public, if you so if you write a novel and your novel doesn't sell in a certain amount of time, I know Rod, you've got experience here, so you can j chime in. But um, there's an another novel comes to replace it, so you're off if you didn't sell a certain number, and we'll put the next novel there. Whereas a science publisher says, "Well, no, this book's available until it is superseded." So it's a bit more of an expensive way to do things. Well, pu publishers are, are cropping authors in a sense, but I can tell you that the average print run for a novel is about three thousand. Okay. And uh, okay. five five thousand is quite good. Uh, Katie's first book went into reprint, and uh, I'm not sure how many she sold of her two novels so far. But uh, okay. uh, it's about the f about the five thousand mark is is doing okay. Okay. Well, I'm um, I'm not quite okay then. <laughs> the, our first print run was just over two thousand, and they're in the second print run now, so they're getting to the end of the first print run. And I'm told for a science book, that's it's not a science book, for a book, it's a book for a general audience, but for a book about science, that's a big number, I'm told. But look, I'm, I'm amazed by publicity. You know, when Clever Clover, you mentioned it now, if people don't know what it means, I'm not going to explain quite yet, but Clever Clover hit a media nerve. It showed a picture of a guy sitting in a in his deck chair because this system I had so-called developed was that the, the, you didn't have to fertilize or weed or plow or anything because we developed this recipe, you know, for that 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 it would all happen. And so the 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 picture was this person sitting in a deck chair with all the plants growing around them because there was nothing else to do. Now, you know, because the clever clover was so clever. Now, 
Um, can you imagine how the media takes that up? And of course, there's more to it than that, of course. But it ran everywhere. Mm. It ran everywhere. So it's almost like the clover was running around your yard, zapping the the, the, <laughs> the bugs and pruning the trees for you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's a story in the book about it. But, um, you know, a, a book like this, I mean, okay, the local media picked it up pretty, pretty very well. Um and, 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 you know, and local TV and, and a few radio stations. But then publicity died, and, and publicity is interesting because, you know, a sub-editor gets a, a press release over their desk or they get the book sent to them, but will they read it? You know, how many do they get sent to them? Um, so publicity really interests me because it's um, it's um, it's that initial response, I suppose. But the next issue is people tell me to read a book and I never do, you know, and then th- someone else tells me to read a book and then I, su- and then I see the same book and then I see that book somewhere and then whatever, you know. I mean, every book I'm given at Christmas time, I never read for about a year and they sit on my shelves and then I hear someone say, oh, and then someone says, oh, and then I go and read it and I think, wow, now I know, what, you know, so it takes time. So w- what's really interesting to me is the feedback I get. What, do pe- what are people saying? Because... This story is so close to my heart. I, I have to write lots of things as a scientist. I write them and push off, and yeah, I don't care who reads them and all. But this one, it's different. Well, uh, to d- dear listener, you will feel an urge coming over. Yes, you're reaching for your wallet. You're walking towards <laughs> the bookshop, and there on the shelf is Out of the Scientist's Garden. It's got a beautiful cover of a uh, magnified water drop sitting on a bright green leaf. Go and buy it because I'm not just saying it's because Richard's in the studio. I have just finished reading it, and it is a really good book. So um, we might have move on from the uh, the book itself, but uh, in the news at the moment is uh, oil, um, mainly because off the coast of West Australia we've managed to uh, lose an oil rig, and there's this terrible accident now in uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and this is relevant because I don't think most of us realise just how much oil and gas is important as part of our agricultural system, not just for bringing in, uh, uh, driving the tractors and producing, and you know, delivering the produce, and the, but also producing the fertiliser. So, now one of my proudest moments on Fuzzy is a while ago. I interviewed a fellow named Robert Rapier, and the interview is still on the uh, Fuzzy Logic blog site. Uh, if you want to hear it. Uh, and he talks about what went wrong in the Gulf of Mexico. And he says, We know the well was drilled and the casing cement was underway. And this morning is an item in the in the Canberra Times saying that they're worried that the casing will crack open and the pipe will, and it'll go from 5,000 litres per day into a million litres per day, or barrels, it might have been. And what happened is... Um, the foam cement is compressible and the pressure gauges at the surface don't, didn't register a sudden spike in that pressure which would have triggered an activation of the blowout preventer on the ocean floor. And this increase was gradual and hard to interpret. Reminds me of you monitoring your garden, Richard. Mm. And the gas reached the surface before the crew knew it was there and the blowout quickly bypassed the cement pumps and ignited, probably knocking out the control system and the hydraulic system for the first few seconds. And after that, the fire was uncontrollable and the flow of gas could not be cut off. And everybody that died on the rig probably died instantly. So, Richard, what's the role then? I have given my own little potted summary there. But but how do you see the future of agriculture in relation to uh, oil and gas supplies in the world? Well, this is a big one, Rod. This is a a big one. Um, In my lifetime the world's population has doubled and the world's food production has doubled plus 10%. So the big horror story of mass famine has been averted. There was massive investment in agriculture when all, you know, through that time of the Club of Rome and, you know, people talking about we're going to outstrip our resources. Now, we had a green revolution and the green revolution is the, is the reason we can feed ourselves globe I'm talking about we kind of need another one in the next, so there's this crazy statistic people say that in the next 50 years the world has to grow as much food as the world has ever grown (laughs) and no one's quite sure what the next green revolution will look like because the last one is heavily dependent on fossil fuels 
heavily dependent on fossil fuels. I said that um, our food production has doubled, but our use of nitrogen fertilizer has gone up seven times in that doubling of food production. The air is made out of nitrogen, 80%, and the way we make fertilizer is we mix it with, you know, it's... The, you talked about the stay in science. There were two German guys who developed this process for taking nitrogen from the air and putting it into fertilizer from a bag, and they got the Nobel Prize for it in 1905 or something. And it's an energy-intensive process. It uses natural gas. It's about the biggest energy input into agriculture is fertilizer, fertilizer. Which translates to energy, really, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think in the book you referred, tell me if I got this wrong, uh, Bomb makers know about the amount of energy that's in nitrogen. And not in my book, but you're right. That's right. That's, I haven't thought that one through, but yeah, yeah, um, you're probably right. Yeah, you can let that energy out in, in other ways. Food is cheap, if you ask a farmer. Okay, so farmers, we have less, fewer and fewer people feed us every year. In the Western world, it is you know just one or two out of a hundred are involved in feeding us. So farms are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more and more specialised. Now, it would be nice to think that food production was an energy pot, one, the one energy positive thing we did. I mean, it's all sunlight. That's the energy. And. Uh, at the farm gate, it's about energy neutral. In other words, the energy, otherwise you couldn't make biofuels. You know, for example, that there are, let me backtrack one step. A farmer puts about as much energy into his farm as we get out as food energy in the product that is, that is eaten. And by the time we've transported it and processed it, the ledger doesn't look very good at all. So the food production system is very energy intensive. Some people might um, like to pipe up and say, well, what about organic farming? Yeah. Is organic farming the answer? And I can imagine a lot of people must walk into your garden mm. and say, oh, what an amazing mm. organic mm. garden this mm. is. But why is organic gardening or organic farming not the answer? Well, it's going to be part of the answer mm -hmm. because we're going to need every single bit that we need. Um, I, I have a great sympathy for organic gardening but what, one of the issues is that in Australia, there are 40 hectares of land for each of us. That's a lot of space, <laughs> but this is a dry place. So only about 20 hectares of land, there's about 20 hectares of farmed land for each of us. And most of that's just rough grazing. So there's one hectare of cropped land for each of us. Okay, you've still got that. That's 100 metres by 100 metres for each of us. And we still grow so much food that we can send half of it overseas. That's Australia. Now, we are very unusual. In the world itself, think of two football fields side by side. There's one hectare each. That was about 1980. Now there's less than two, three quarters of a hectare. That's one football field and half a football field. And the one football field is too cold or too steep or too dry for crops, so that has to have animals on it. So we've got half of a football field, try line to the halfway, to grow the, the things that feed us. And you know what feeds us? Rice, wheat, maize, okay, soybeans. They, and, and what they derive from those things, feed them to animals or whatever. Now, if I want to grow crops to produce the nitrogen, of course there are legumes that do that, or if I want to take my cropping land and put it down to pastures to regenerate it naturally, I'm pushing rice, wheat, maize, you know, out of that space. So the system's pretty tight. The system's pretty tight. I now can't regenerate. I'm talking on a world scale now. I'm not talking about Australia or my back garden or whatever. There isn't enough space to kind of run a... As far as we know, you know... Uh, the four-course rotation that, you know, agriculture started on when you went from legume to brassica to grass to wheat, you know. The, the system has intensified so much, and it's reliant on fertilisers. Now, you know, one of the problems with agriculture, nitrogen is not the only problem. You know, nitrogen, is, it's an energy problem. 
The other problem is you talk about peak oil. Peak oil means that demand-supply curve doesn't work anymore because demand, supply is as fast as it can be. Okay, that's what peak means. You, if you demand more, you can't get more because I'm pumping it out as fast as I can. So the price just changes. You know, the supply doesn't change. Well, we've hit that with phosphorus, which is the second most important fertilizer after nitrogen. So we've hit peak phosphorus. Hit just about hit peak phosphorus. Okay. And what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is the same kind of thing as, as oil. You, the price will just start going up, and we'll, you know, obviously it'll, there'll be more, you know, searching for it, and we'll mine lower grade deposits and all the rest of it. The the impact is this that. We want to live in the city. <laughs> People don't want to live in the country worldwide. I'm not, you know, they, 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 I mean, we want the simple life and, and, and we want the connection with the land, but the truth is that people are leaving this, the, the country faster than they've ever have in the history of humanity. People, okay. So that means that all the waste comes to the city, and then what? All the nutrients come to the city. So how do we complete the cycles? How do we complete... How do we, you know, we send it to the sea. Are you talking about uh, sewerage and compost exactly. primarily? Exactly. So yeah. you're saying that there's a big unmined asset there? Well, I'm saying that, you know, when we make things efficient, <laughs> the efficient thing to do often isn't to recycle. The efficient thing is the production line. Mine it, use it, deliver it to the supermarket. That's where you started this conversation. And then it's very expensive to close the cycle in a, in, when you've got a society that thinks of itself as efficient. So, in other words, you said that farming or food is very cheap, but yes. um, there's this thing called externalities. Absolutely. And so I think what you're talking about here is the an externality. is born somewhere else. Yes. Or, d- or delayed. So does that it's mean... delayed cost. Does that mean perhaps we're not paying the true cost of food? Uh, there's no question about that. There's no question about that. But it's not clear how to think that one through. You know, there's... It's very hard to say, am I mining the result? You know, am I... You know, one of the things that, for example... There's always degradation with production in some sense. Um, And how you... If you just increase the price of food, you might... you'll, You'll simply increase... Yeah, so simply putting the price up isn't going to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's something deeper than that. There's something structural that we need to come well, to grips with. I did have a, a really nice little circular saw at home, and uh, something silly went wrong with it. The bearing inside died on me, yeah. and it had well, those little screws that prevent people like me from opening them up and fixing yeah, them. Yeah. So what did I do? I got fed up with this thing, and I chucked it in the bin. I went yeah. down to the supermarket, and I bought a new circular saw, and it cost me $179. Now, I don't know how... I can buy a thing that was a higher capacity, larger blade for $179. Something is out of kilter here. Yeah. Well, look, I bought one for $49 and and uh, from probably the same shop that you did. And every time I do that, I, I, I see the tension. <laughs> I know that, yeah, I, I shouldn't be doing it, but I do do it. So, mm. Well, I think we all behave largely because of the economic forces on us. Mm. And the idea that you can kind of paste on a fix by a mm. subsidy here or, or a, a tweak there isn't. It's like you said, it's a structural thing, mm. isn't it? So, just want to go back to the, the yeah. global food thing, yeah. Richard. Do you do you get a sense that we're going to meet the challenge of feeding the population? We're talking about is it nine billion people by twenty fifty? Mm. In Australia, thirty five million people. That, that's Australia. a lot of bodies. That's a lot of mouths. That's a lot of bottoms. Mm. You know, in one of the book reviews, um, someone said, um, I read this book, I, lo- I loved it, and I'm going to read it several... I can see myself reading it many times, but my big criticism... I just read this in the newspaper, not yours, not mine, <laughs> uh, ...is that this guy's a little bit too relaxed about feeding the world. And one of the things I think I did in the book was... I, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking that angle as a way of trying to pull people into the subject of a looming catastrophe. One of the things I show in the book is, you know, when when people first came to this country uh, and planted wheat, so sorry, when pe- 
gee, I'm going to get this wrong, aren't I? When white people first started growing wheat in this country over 100 years ago, you grew a slice of toast from every square metre of land you planted to wheat, okay? After 50 years, it was down to half a piece of toast because the land had been degraded. Now it's more than two slices of toast, average. Now, how does that happen? We've had more degradation, but we're getting more yield. Well, there's been a lot of ingenuity that's happened in the last 50 years, which I won't go through every one, that have lifted the yields up, 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 over and above. We talked about virgin land, how, you know, over above what you could possibly do at when people first started to grow wheat. So, innovation is amazing. <laughs> but let's not rely on innovation to get us out of the jam uh, without wanting to change our own behaviour. Let's not uh, rely on someone else's innovation, you know. So there's, um, you know, the future isn't an extrapolation of the past, but, and the, and the food crisis that we saw, you know, there was a food crisis three years ago, which is, which is gone in, in a way. We've, we've stabilised the prices and land that was taken out of production has come back in, you know. But it is... Yeah, now don't let me make the same mistake again and sound too relaxed. Um, it's a gigantic issue. And everyone needs to bring something to the table to to think about how, how we're going to, to yeah. think it through. I, I get the feeling yeah. you, you want to avoid the big, bold statement like, you know, the world is going to hit starvation. And I don't blame mm. you for wanting to avoid that. And also a book in which you write on the theme of how terrible things are going to be will, will turn people off. So mm. I, I, I mm. tend to try to avoid that generally mm. as well. Mm. So let's, let's just bring the scale back down to your own garden. You have a family of... Uh, how many kids? Two, was it? Uh, three. Three kids. Yeah. And you have a pretty much a standard quarter-acre block. Mm. And you have extracted every last ounce of productivity. Is, mm. that, is that true to say? Am I um, begging the question there? No, no, no. Um, there's flowers in the front garden, but... Uh. Oh, oh you can, <laughs> it tastes good? Okay. Yeah, cauliflowers. Uh, how, no. <laughs> how, how close to feeding a family of five okay. are you, okay. given that you are probably uh, using more science than anybody mm. in Canberra, probably, in, mm. in doing this? In a garden, at least, I think. But <laughs> yes, in a garden. In a garden. Um, not that close. Um you know, a, a quarter acre block is only a, a, a tenth of a hectare. There's more than that each on, on in the world. So that's that's you know. Um, look, we we don't grow our staples. Basically, we don't grow our staples. If I did, I'd grow potatoes, and if I put potatoes um, fence to fence and only ate potatoes, that probably could only keep one of us going. <laughs> We're a fruit and vegetable garden. Now, the thing about fruit and vegetables is that's what makes eating the great pleasure. I don't know if you're, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, but the uh, I read a wonderful book a while back called It's Easy to Feed the World, and it was a subtly tongue-in-cheek book, but it was written by a, a serious fellow, and he, what he did was he looked at cultures that are quite poor but have wonderful cuisine. So perhaps India, parts of Asia, or and people have learned, or cultures have learned, to make delicious food without those three things that we crave. Fat, sugar, salt. That's what we crave. That's what's at the fast food store. Mm. That's what we're after. Now, they are biologically expensive. So now what we have to do is to make food so tasty just by creativity again we have to re refine that cr that creativity of how to make simple ingredients incredibly tasty what about uh, eating mushrooms do you grow mushrooms I'm no I don't but that that tasty enough sure 
Because yeah. that, that was a bit of a segue for you, Nisa, yeah. because this morning you have a, a story about uh, toadstools, in fact. That's right. We were looking at mushrooms in a completely different manner, not in terms of eating them or even um, gaining any other effects from them. Um, there are researchers at the ANU looking at mushrooms in Papua New Guinea to look mm. at um, chemicals, new compounds in these mushroom extracts to find new antibiotics because the search is on for um, mm. new antibiotics as we're coming um, up against um, bacteria with antibiotic resistance. So, yeah, they're looking into these mushrooms. There's a team that specialises in fungi at the ANU, and, um, yeah, there's a Papua New Guinean guy there who's just come across to, to look at mushroom extracts. So it's very... And they've got amazing um, different kinds of mushrooms as well, red mushrooms and all different colours. Yes, you think the wonderful cocktails of things that they grow. And what about uh, in your garden, Richard, do you... Uh have you thought about doing things like having, you know, in Asia they have fish yeah. and uh, chickens? I've got chickens in my backyard. Yeah. Well, I, we certainly have chickens. And, you know, one of the things I love about chickens is the scraps bucket. You know, the amount... Now, here's an interesting idea, which I saw the other day. Um, you need about 2,500 calories a day to get you through today. But we grow more than 4,000, the world, for every person. We can't get even the two and a half to each person. And there's huge wastage in the food chain itself. Huge wastage. So let's bring it back to a really local scale. You know, the scraps bucket, I mean, we have, we, we th- I throw out, and maybe this is because we bring a lot of stuff from the garden already, so we bring in much more kind of unprocessed food, but we throw out a four-litre bucket a day into the chickens from scraps from the household. So that that's satisfying. That is satisfying. And I, I do like chickens, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what I like about them is their, their, their wants are so simple, you know. I come out into the backyard and there's chicken, you know, we've got the, the gate shut and it's going, oh, I just want to get out, I just want to get out. And you open the gate and they rush out and they scratch through the dirt all day and they're so happy and then they, at night they go back to bed and they get into their straw boxes and in the morning they go, oh, I want to get out, I just want to dig in the dirt. And then we get their eggs as well. Simple pleasures. I know, look, I often think about the psychology of chickens. They are extraordinarily greedy. They, they rush for the scraps bucket. And how they know... I don't know how they know what's what, but they love fat and they love sugar like us. Yes. They love it. Now, they have a self-feeder of pellets, 16% protein, everything a chicken could possibly want, you know, to lay eggs at least. And that is their... They can have any amount of it they like, and they have a, a water... F- it's, a, it's a fast food shop 24 hours a day, but they rush the scraps bucket. Bacon rind, <laughs> cake, <laughs> icing, you know, because I don't like icing, and I put... You know, they, they just they just go mad for it. <laughs> now, I've wondered, are they just bored, and this is enjoyment? But one of our chickens had a little accident. I don't know what happened to it, but it, it's like dislocated its leg or something. It's in a bit of pain, so it's hobbling a bit. And I thought, I wonder what this thing will do when the scraps bucket comes. But it goes at the same speed as all the others. It will overcome the pain barrier to get to the scraps bucket. So it's not just <laughs> hunger. Like my household. It's not hunger. Chickens. It's it's you know they yeah. <laughs> but they do they do a couple of really stupid things. Is one is they poo in their own uh, nest. Their own nest. Yeah, we box. do that too, though. Humans, don't we? Well, I have a toilet in my place. Isn't that what we've been talking about, with the way we produce our food? (laughs) Yes, yeah, Mm. yeah, good point. And uh, the other thing they do is, uh, it might dump this nice little little pile of stuff, food for them on the floor of their yard, and then they'll stand in the middle of it and then spray it across across everywhere. They can't, you know, it's there, you know. (laughs) Mm. But look, we're we're out of time now, so... uh, Time to wrap up and say thank you very much to our, our guest this morning, Dr. Richard Sturzaker, Principal Research Scientist of CSIO Land and Water and author of Out of the Scientist Garden, published by CSIRO. Make sure you go and buy it because it really is a good read and it's not just hard science, but it's, to me it's a personal story about a garden and your connection to the garden and how it relates to this big question of what do we eat? Uh, my name is Rod. You've been listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 98.3 FM. And join us next week for some more science on a Sunday.